Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Harvard Kennedy School adjunct lecturer Tim McCarthy. Tim directs the Sexuality, Gender, and Human Rights program at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy and has been an outspoken advocate for LGBT rights and protest movements dating from the defeat of South African apartheid to the recent Occupy movement. Tim, welcome to the PolicyCast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. So in September of 2011, mm-hmm. uh, Zuccotti Park in New York City became the epicenter for what became known as the general greater Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us a brief history on where it came from, what started it, and what happened after it uh, got started? Well, one of the things that I think, I mean, it, it, there is a kind of mythology around the Occupy movement that it kind of exploded out of the blue. It came out of nowhere. And I, and I don't ever agree that any social movement explodes out of the blue. There are always foundations that have been laid uh, that help to create the conditions and the forces that converge to, to, to give rise to any kind of a social movement, including Occupy. And I think one of the things that, that, uh, that happened is that I, I think it was on Tumblr originally, one of the social media uh, uh, forums where uh, people were 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 taking photographs or videos of themselves posting I am I am the 99 percent uh, and it was an attempt to frame the 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 dynamics of the country as you know most of us are kind of getting screwed by the powers that be by our political systems and especially our economic systems and of the convergence between the two the deregulation of the financial services industry uh, the lack of firm regulation of banks and other kinds of economic institutions and so I think that one of the things so, so the social media helped to foster I think that visible presence of people identifying themselves with the kind of 90 and that kind of that went viral. And all of a sudden, the I am the 99% became the we are the 99%. And I think that social media helped to foster the emergence of the movement in that way. But I think there were larger and deeper sort of forces that were at work in the emergence of the Occupy movement that kind of coalesced into a, a, a deep rage and frustration over the what really had been a generation of uh, what many people thought was a kind of conspiracy between the political institutions and financial institutions to sort of uh, allow economic institutions to run amok. And then the extraordinary profits that were made uh, as a result of deregulation were then filtered back into the pockets of the po- very politicians who are presiding over the deregulation. And there are economists and other folks who, who know a lot more about all the different kinds of policies that took place during the uh, Reagan administration, really goes back to the Carter administration where the uh, deregulation began and then accelerated under Reagan and then, of course, also under Clinton and then and then Bush too. And so what you've seen over the course really of two generations is an exploding sort of gap between the rich and poor, an enormous concentration of, of obscene wealth at the top of our society uh, and a growing sort of disconnect or disaffection among those at the, in the bottom rungs of society, the poor and working class, and increasingly the middle class too, which has become incredibly uh, kind of anxious. And then when the recession hit in 2009, 2010, uh, you really saw um, uh, uh, a a deep kind of rage and anxiety, instability and insecurity among a a, a large portion of the American citizenry. And so that message of we are the 99%, this idea that a majority of the country, a vast majority of the country uh, was somehow suffering, 
under the weight of this political and economic system. Uh, that, I think, helped to kind of give the, the, the sort of foundation for the Occupy movement uh, to emerge to really visibly challenge both the political institutions and the economic institutions in our society. And they did so by occupying these public and private spaces. And so you saw initially in New York and Zuccotti Park, the first kind of Occupy movement, the first occupation, as it were. And then you saw a proliferation of occupations that took place in Boston and Philadelphia and Oakland and all over the country uh, as a result of that. So for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Right. And a lot of people have seen the Occupy movement as something of a reaction to mm -hmm. its antithesis, which would probably be the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It, do, you, do you see it that way? Or do they both have a kind of common underlying cause? It seems like both come from uh, people who are are struggling yeah. and, and you know want to figure out a way to have uh, more economic power, more yeah. power over their lives. I think that's right. I think that's a very smart insight. I think uh, it's no coincidence that the Tea Party and the Occupy movement have both emerged at the same time in American history. They're both offering, I think, very devastating critiques of our political economy as it is a status quo. Uh, and so the Tea Party, on the one hand, is 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 promoting a kind of austerity plan, a small government or, or no government kind of uh, uh, platform where they want government out of uh, out of regulation out of our lives and they want to be able to keep their money they want you know taxes to flatten out or to have no taxes at all uh, if you take the kind of Grover Norquist extreme um, and so the Tea Party is really looking to shrink government to create a kind of austerity ethos and also then to uh, be able to create a situation where people can can have their own money and the money that they have is not taken by government in any way or regulated by government in any way so that's a kind of conservative uh, Tea Party approach to this. One of the things that's very interesting, though, about the Tea Party is that they are a kind of small government or uh, operation that has infiltrated the government, has t really in some ways seized control over the House of Representatives, really fundamentally, uh, I think, reshaping the political dynamics in Congress right now. We can talk more about that. But I think for, a, for an, a, almost an anti-government kind of uh, a social movement, they've, they sure have uh, a, a, a quite a fixation uh, and, and, and flirtation with government uh, right now. And the other side of the kind of political spectrum on the left side side of the political spectrum, you have Occupy, which also is bringing a devastating critique of the political economy, but they see, uh, in, in many cases, a, a society that is deeply unfair, deeply unequal, um, that is creating all sorts of uh, suffering among people economically, socially, politically, and otherwise, uh, and they want a, a sort of a, a dismantling of the kind of political economy that's led to this growing gap between rich and poor, this high concentration of wealth at the top, and this deep suffering that's taking place uh, in a, among a majority of American citizens. And so they are, um, in a way, both engaging in these questions about what kind of society we should have. How should our political institutions function in such a way to create fairness or to create an individual kind of, uh, you know, a realm of privacy or to allow people to, to keep their own wealth uh, or whether or not we want to redistribute wealth, whether government has a role in redistributing wealth and regulating financial institutions so that the way that our economic institutions are operating creates a more fair society that's not just driven by profit. Profit, uh, but it's driven by a concern for people. And so these movements have emerged at the same time. They're very, very different movements. One occupies the right wing of the political spectrum. Another occupies the left. But I'm actually glad that we're having this conversation. I think these two movements um, have forced us to have a conversation about the role of government, about the role of our economic institutions, whether or not capitalism is a good thing. Many of us take for granted that you know, we're all capitalists now. Uh, there are those of us that would have a criticism of that, that would really push back on that kind of a, an assumption. 
But they're really asking, I think, very deep questions about how our political and economic institutions function to create the kind of society that we all live in, and then what we're subjected to in that society. And so while they have very different answers, they're asking very similar kinds of questions. So one thing that I think uh, separates Occupy and the Tea Party, uh, the Tea Party started in really August of 2009 mm -hmm. with the reaction to the Obama health care, yes. the American yes. Affordable Care Act. Affordable Health Affordable um, Care Act, yep. Uh, and uh, it really had an impact on that was August 2009 really had an impact on the 2010 election mm -hmm. um, the Occupy movement started mm -hmm. in September of 2011 but by the election of 2012 it seemed like Occupy was you know people refer to it in the past tense now. yes yes, um, yes is there reason that it didn't have longevity or you know did it have an impact mm -hmm. uh, while it did exist? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was interesting because I did. A, I, I don't think I've ever been interviewed more in the media about any one thing than about the Occupy movement. It was amazing people's kind of fascination, not only in the United States but elsewhere. Uh, and I, I remember in the in the one year anniversary of, of Zuccotti Park of the Occupy movement kind of emerging into public life, uh, there were all of these retrospectives as if it was ancient history. And one of the things that I think we we miss, I, I really do want to kind of resist the narrative that the Occupy movement didn't have an impact politically and that it that it still doesn't have an impact politically. That I think that the 2012 election in many ways was framed by the Occupy movement. That as much as the 2010 election was very much framed by the emergence of the Tea Party. And here's what I mean. If the Occupy movement had not shifted the discourse in terms of how we think about majorities and minorities and how we think about certain kinds of percentages. Right? There was a genius framing by saying we are the 99%. Social movements, by and large, are minoritarian movements, not just in terms of identity, but in terms of numbers. Right? Most social movements that are pushing for change are a small fraction of the population. That was true of the abolitionists, the black freedom struggle, the women's movement, etc. Um, and that's always been the case, the LGBT movement. Most movements are minoritarian movements about that they're small parts of the larger population. Well, the Occupy movement did, even though it too, in many ways, was still a fraction of the population, it framed itself as a supermajority, as 99%, that we're all in this together because we're all being screwed in very similar ways. And I think that that was a genius framing because it put the 1% on the defensive. And who's the 1%? Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney could not have been a better poster child for the 1%. And so the Republican Party, fraught as it is with all of these kinds of conflicts between mainstream Republicans and the, the Tea Party faction of the Republican Party and the Grover Norquist wing of the Republican Party and the neocons and the foreign policy people, that Reagan coalition that coalesced to give Reagan his power in the 1980s has now completely fallen apart. And so the Republican Party, the primaries, it's wrestling with its, its soul. And so all of those crazy candidates that they trotted out, each one had a kind of week or two in the limelight. And they finally end up nominating Mitt Romney, who is literally, if you were to make a, 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 a calendar of the 1%, Mitt Romney would be the, 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 star, the star picture. And so what they did in framing the 1% and then in nominating Mitt Romney is that they set him up for a continual framing. And so if without the 1%, 99% framing initially in the Occupy movement, you don't, the 47% doesn't have any meaning. 
the 47% when Mitt Romney was at that very fancy sort of uh, uh, funder uh, dinner, and he said that 47%, I'm never going to get 40% of the population. It's interesting, of course, and ironic and fitting that he got 47% of the vote ultimately in the in the election, but that's another issue. But when he said that 47% of the people are off limits to me, they're dependent on government, this, that, and the other thing, he was speaking to the people that are the Occupy movement, the people the Occupy movement had already framed as the 99%. And so there was enormous outrage that was, I think, in, in excess, really, of, uh, of the sentiment that was embedded in what he said. Um, and I think the Occupy movement framed that. I think the Occupy movement framed Mitt Romney. And it framed Mitt Romney at a time when the Republican Party is really struggling to figure out what its soul, what its core, and what its principles are. Uh, and the Democrats were able to take advantage of that. That said, the Occupy movement didn't have the same kind of impact on the Democratic Party, on President Obama, uh, as the Tea Party has had on the Republican Party and particularly the congressional delegation and the GOP. But the Occupy movement never wanted to have that impact. The Occupy movement was never going to produce a 10-point plan that they would submit to the Democratic Party and expect to get five and a half to six of those 10 points enacted. That's not what the Occupy movement was. They were bringing a radical critique of our political economy as it currently exists and all of the inequalities and suffering that flows from our political economy as it currently exists. And so I see them more in the, 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 the vein of the very radical kinds of anarchist traditions and socialist traditions and other kinds of political protest traditions that exist in this country. They're not seeking to infiltrate the Democratic Party because they think, and many of them, think that the Democratic Party is morally, politically, ethically bankrupt. And I think there's, you know, we need to entertain that, 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 that proposition. But what they did was they brought a radical critique to bear on our political institutions at a time in our history where we have to bring more radical and progressive and alternative critiques to bear on the status quo, because our institutions are not working. And if we don't have the courage to bring those questions and those critiques to bear on these systems that govern and shape our and influence our lives and constrain our lives in many ways, then I think think we're missing out on a political moment here that the Occupy movement did fill for a time. The other thing that they did is they engaged in acts of public civil disobedience, occupying private spaces, occupying public spaces, and claiming that kind of political tradition of civil disobedience, which is central to this nation's history. Without that, that, that political tradition of civil disobedience, we don't have the American Revolution. Without that tradition, we don't have the abolitionist movement. We don't have the black freedom struggle. We don't have the women's movement, the labor movement, the LGBT movement, or any other movement that has produced profound change in the society's uh, history. And so I want to, I don't, I don't want to glorify or romanticize them. There were problems there. Uh, the movement, I think, was was probably too too white. The movement was pro probably could have used some organizing training uh, in some respects. There were, there were lots of things the movement could have done differently. Um, but they did some important things that I think we need to sort of have um, uh, some, some honesty about with respect to their political influence. And another thing that I want to just mention about Occupy is that the Occupy camps were feeding people. The Occupy camps were providing food for folks and shelter for folks at a time when a lot of people are hungry and homeless. And what could be more radical than that? In many ways, the most radical thing the Occupy movement did was to offer people the basic kinds of things that they need to survive in a world where they are not getting those things. And so I will defend the Occupy movement in that way because I think that that is something, and you know, for someone like me who is raised in a Catholic social justice tradition, right, who takes 
Christ's teaching seriously, even if I'm not a kind of devout churchgoer. Um, you know, what would Jesus do? Jesus would have been at the Occupy camps. So uh, uh, that's <laughs> it's a, a strong, transition. <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's, a, that's a fairly strong statement, yeah, I would say. Yeah. Uh, I'm known for that. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have a, a better segue. That's okay. But uh, another thing that you are heavily involved in is, or have been heavily involved in, um, is the LGBT mm-hmm. rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, earlier this year, I think it was uh, in May uh, mm-hmm. of 2012, uh, President Obama came out in support of uh, uh, marriage equality. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that was simply a poli- you know a politician acting on you know voters uh, you know voters' attitudes changing, mm-hmm. or was it an important moment for mm-hmm. the LGBT rights m- movement? I mean, did it actually have a real impact? Yeah. Well, first, Matt, let me just say that I love the fact that we just transitioned from Jesus to, to gay <laughs> people, um, which is wonderful. Um, you know, another what would Jesus do? Probably make that transition, too. But that's a whole other that's probably a more provocative point. Uh, with respect to the president's so-called evolution on marriage equality, uh, you know, I, I have a couple of things to say. One is that I worked on the campaign, uh, President Obama's uh, campaign in 2008 when he was candidate Obama, Senator Obama, and I was on his LGBT uh, leadership uh, board. Um, and there's a group of people who were uh, LGBT activists uh, who were very much in support of the president and who were uh, were uh, really full of hope that he would because that he would deliver like no president ever had before on a whole host of LGBT issues. And I think in many respects, he has done that. Uh, and so I w- remain very proud of having joined that campaign in 2007 when nobody thought he had a, a prayer of winning. Um, and I was, you know, remain proud of that work and that support. Uh, president Obama, even as a candidate, has always been quite far-reaching in the way that he has reached out to the LGBT community and in the policies that he's embraced with respect to the LGBT community. Uh, As a candidate, he was the most progressive candidate we've ever had in terms of LGBT policy issues. Uh, He was the first candidate to uh, agree to go on the Logo Presidential Forum, which was the first ever presidential forum specifically focused on LGBT issues. Uh, And in uh, in his first term as president has advanced an enormous amount of uh, of progress or helped to bring about enormous amount of progress to the LGBT community, repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, the the passage of the Bird Shepherd Hate Crimes Act, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, directives at the agency level, uh, appointment of more openly LGBT uh, people in his administration than any president in history. So he really has been, uh, in many ways, I like to say that he was in in many ways kind of like the uh, the (laughs) LBJ of the LGBT movement. Uh, that said, he's not the leader of the LGBT movement. Uh, he's a political ally that at times has been uh, a, a political obstructionist. Early on in his administration, there was an enormous amount of frustration, myself inc- among many of us, myself included, that he wasn't uh, that he wasn't moving swiftly enough. Uh, and one of the things that we know from American history is that presidents never work swiftly enough when it comes to social movement expectations and protest demands of political progress. And so, you know, we we knew we were going to be disappointed on some level, but 
but we were disappointed and we were very outspoken about our disappointment and I was as well, even though I had worked on the campaign. Uh, and I still think there's a lot of work to do. With respect to marriage equality, that's always been the one kind of stumbling block for him with respect to all these other issues, whether it comes to employment non-discrimination or the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell or hate crimes and bullying laws. Uh, he's pretty uh, out there on those issues and has been all along. He's always equivocated on marriage equality, even though early on in his uh, state uh, legislative career, he did embrace marriage equality in the 90s or the early 2000s, uh, and, and, and then backtracked on that. And I think there's a sense among many of us, myself included, that he always in his heart of hearts was for marriage equality, but that he couldn't really be for marriage equality because the political winds had not changed uh, sufficiently enough for him to really come out in favor of it. Uh, because, it, And that's what makes him not a leader on this issue. That's what makes him a follower. And most presidents, most politicians are followers, uh, particularly on major issues of civil rights. And that has historically been the case throughout American history, whether you're talking about Lincoln and slavery or FDR and labor rights or Woodrow Wilson and women's rights or uh, John F. Kennedy and LBJ on civil rights. And so uh, we can we can come to expect this. Our presidents are never courageous leaders at the vanguard of civil rights movements in this country. Um, but it was a source of en enormous disappointment for the LGBT community, partly because the move the movement itself has focused so much of its time and treasure on the marriage equality part of the movement, which is only one part of the movement. There are lots of other things that we need and that we should be demanding, uh, and where we should be investing our time and treasure. But when he came out for that, I think many of us reacted to it with a, okay, finally, he finally, quote, evolved. I don't think any of us ever believed that there was really an evolution going on. I think it was really a kind of a matter of political timing. That said, it has had a huge impact. There's no question it's had a huge impact, and you see it in a number of ways. One is, I don't think it's a coincidence that, and, and, and part of the, much of the credit needs to go to the movement and the activists who have been hammering away at marriage equality and hammering away at LGBT rights for a generation now, over a generation. But it did have an impact in the sense that this was the first election where you had ballot initiatives at the state level in Washington, in Minnesota, in Maryland, and in Maine, where LGBT rights were up for a popular vote. Every single time that there have been popular state-level ballot referendums on LGBT rights, we've lost. This time we won all four. We defeated the constitutional amendment in Minnesota, and gay marriage is going to be is or is going to be legal uh, in three more states, three more jurisdictions. That was a major kind of turning point or watershed moment in the struggle for LGBT political rights in the United States. And if the president had not come out in favor of that, we may still have won those victories. Who knows? But but the president and the vice president coming out, and many of the governors and other kinds of political officials coming out in favor of marriage equality, I think it, it helped to tip the scale. There's no question about that in my mind. Um, it may have happened anyway, but it certainly helped to facilitate that. So that's one thing is that we've we've reached a watershed moment because the president is finally on board. And I should say, because I'm a big fan of Joe Biden's, that Joe Biden pushed the president out of his little closet on the issue of marriage equality. And I'm grateful for that because Joe Biden has always been kind of, you know, what you see is what you get. And I kind of love the fact that he was uh, he was he was ahead of the president on that, as was Arne Duncan, a Harvard graduate, who uh, very uh, distinguished basketball player here at Harvard. Uh, and and 
they were both out in front of that with, with respect to the president. Another thing that it's done, I think, and this is an important piece, is that I think it's helped to open up a different conversation about marriage equality in the African-American community. I think one of the myths, uh, uh, unfortunate myths that gets bandied about in the LGBT movement and way outside of it is that African-Americans are deeply homophobic because they're part of a kind of church tradition and so forth. And I think that's very overblown, frankly. Um, my, in my own life, I've had uh, amazing relationships with a whole range of black folks. My husband's an African-American. I've raised an African-American child. I've done a lot of work with the black church. And I have found enormous um, openness, enormous love, uh, friendship, and solidarity among African-American people that I've worked with and known and loved and, 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 and so forth. Um, and so I think it's a bit of a myth that you know African-Americans as a group and church-going African-Americans as a subgroup of that larger group uh, are intensely homophobic, more homophobic than anyone else. But I do think that there are elements, like there are elements in any group, of homophobia there and that there are church-based elements of homophobia as there are in any groups. I'm a, I'm a working-class Irish Catholic kid. Uh, I certainly heard a lot of homophobia from the pulpit from my priests growing up when I was a kid, uh, and there weren't a lot of black people in my churches. Um, and so there are a lot of churches and, and religious institutions that are propagating homo homophobia and speaking out against homosexuals and making LGBT people within those church congregations, within those religious institutions, feel like they don't belong there. Certainly that was the case for me, it was the case for my husband, uh, and it was a case for many people across the country. But what, what Barack Obama has done, I think, is open up a conversation, given license to a conversation in certain parts of the African-American church community to have a conversation about marriage equality as a broader conversation about equality. And I think that, that is, that's something that has had an impact. We're seeing that in poll numbers, that the, that the, uh, um, the um, public opinion within the African-American community and within the African-American religious community has shifted in the last year on marriage equality. And I think that that had to have something to do with it. So yeah, I think there's no question um, that this has had an impact. I don't think it's merely symbolic. I think it's real. I think there are real political consequences to this, and I'm grateful for it. The other thing, too, is that I just want to say in addition to the fact that I think Barack Obama will go down in history as the LBJ of the LGBT movement, meaning that he was the president that finally came on board with our movement and helped us to, uh, to make more progress than we might have otherwise, um, he is also the first president in the history of the United States. And I love the symbolism and the power of the first black president being the first president of the United States to endorse marriage equality, which is a very important issue to the LGBT movement and to LGBT people. Uh, and if he is able in a second term to help dismantle the Defense of Marriage Act and to extend federal benefits and to do a whole range of things that would really complete uh, or at least further the movement for marriage equality and for all kinds of equality in the LGBT community and way outside of it, he will go down in history as being one of the great presidents of the United States. I have full uh, faith that that will happen if those things come to be. But he has certainly uh, taken some big steps in the right direction. Uh, and as much as I will remain a critic, of the president, because that's my role, uh, I, will, I also must commend him um, for being an ally. He has become an ally to our community, uh, and that feels good, I, I must say. Well, Tim McCarthy, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.